The Talking Football Podcast is brought to you in association with Luaf Press. Get 15% off all football titles with the code TALKINGFOOTBALL. You can also use the code UK15 for free UK shipping on orders over £15 and International30 for outside the UK for sales over £30. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 57 of the Talking Fitball podcast with me, Derek Clark. Every week we try and bring you a top-class interview with some of the biggest names involved in the game. This week I had the pleasure of chatting to one of the finest broadcasters in the business, a man I've had the delight of getting to know while covering Leicester City. It is of course TalkSport's Jeff Peters. It was great to get Jeff on as he looks back over an eventful career from his early beginnings at BBC Leicester where he was made sports editor at the tender age of 21. He talks about commentating on his beloved Foxes, run-ins with chairman and managers, the legendary Premier League triumph under Claudio Ranieri, the devastating helicopter tragedy and what he makes of the club under Brendan Rodgers. As always, it's another refreshingly honest interview with plenty of laughs throughout. So sit back and enjoy the latest episodes of the Talking Football Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the Talking Fitball podcast. I'm delighted to say we're joined this week by broadcasting royalty, Talk Sports Zone, Jeff Peters. Jeff, thanks very much for coming on. I hear the sound of a barrel being scraped somewhere <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the far distance. Great to see you, Derek. <laughs> yeah, likewise, Jeff. Of course, we're just talking off there, there with regards to the lockdown and what have you. Uh, I guess it's good getting the football back for, for guys like us, but how's it been for, for yourself? I know you do a bit of DJing in your, in your spare time as well. Yeah, it's been a strange old time, but the way I look at it is it's been a strange old time for everybody, hasn't it? So you just got to kind of uh, just batten down the hatches and, and, and crack on with it. I do miss being out there DJing and, and, and I love, love my music. At least the football is back, so we've got something to focus on, so there is, there is some work on that. But again... I always look at it as there's loads of people are worse off than me. So um, it's, it's just about staying healthy during these difficult times and keeping mentally strong and having, trying to have a schedule in your life. And I've been trying to learn Spanish. And wow. uh, every day I've done 107 days worth, but it's, wow. I, can, I, can, I know what things are called, but putting them in sentences and, and understanding when people speak is very difficult. But, yeah. but I think you've got to... You know, in difficult times like this, you've you've got to you've got you've got to do something with your mind. You know, mentally, it's it, it is difficult for a lot of people. So you just have to you just have to crack on. It is what it is. Everybody's in the same boat. Um, and you know, in a few months' time, hopefully, everything will look a, a hell of a lot brighter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's look back at the career then, Jeff. What was it for you that you decided to pursue a career in the old journalism? Did you feel that, that the dream to be a footballer wasn't going to happen and you decided you wanted to get into reporting on the game? What do you think? What, what, what do you mean that I'm never going to be a footballer? You know, there's still, I'm, I'm 47, there's still time, surely, for, for this to happen. Uh, no, I think I, I think I realised fairly early on that being a being an athlete of some sort wasn't going to work for me. I played football at school, played cricket at school, I was captain of the school cricket team, I played for some local teams. But I wasn't, you know, like, like most lads of that generation, you know, we, I spent all my time playing football or cricket. It just 
sport being out of the house. There was no computer games, anything like that. Loved playing sport. But I was really fascinated from a young age listening to, uh, listening to the radio. You know, you'd hear like a crackly broadcast on Radio 2 of Liverpool away at some team in Finland and Liverpool winning 9-0, whatever it was. And just, I was just fascinated by listening to, to, to guys on the radio. And, and, and it, it pretty much was all I, I kind of wanted to do, that and being a DJ. And I was DJing from, DJing from the age of, sort of 14, really. I think I did my first sort of solo uh, gig in a time when it wasn't considered to be cool. It was just something that I wanted to do because I loved music. And my first match report I did when I was 10, I was, I was a proper, proper little geek, proper little anorak. I was in a school team and I said to the teacher, you know, you write a match report of every game we play. Can I have a go at writing it? And he said, amazingly, he said, yes. Uh, but then he said, but you've also got to read it out in front of everyone in assembly. So apparently I said, yeah, fine, no problem. So I, we played a game and uh, I think I played in it or came off the bench, whatever, and typed it up on a typewriter. If there's any younger people, you know, a typewriter was like a keyboard, um, but not as, <laughs> not, 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 as cool as a, not as cool as a keyboard, a very old fashioned thing. And then I read it out in assembly and I still, that teacher, my primary school teacher my, uh, when I was 10, was my best ever teacher. And it, we, we don't live that far away from each other now. We still keep in contact and we email and, you know, go and have a coffee and, or beer or whatever. Uh, so he was sort of very encouraging. And then I think I was always... I think I was always sort of very self-motivated, Derek, because yeah. when I was 12, I was down at the cricket down at Leicestershire and I went up to the, the guy from Radio Leicester who was there, John Rawling, who went on to be BBC's boxing athletics correspondent, you know, he's had a fantastic career. I just went up to him and said, do you want someone to do all the statistics for you? You know, all the ball by ball and who's faced this and that kind of thing. And he said, yes, that'd be lovely. So I did that a few times for him. And then the next year when I was 13, he said, do you want to come in on a Saturday afternoon and, and work on the sports show? So it could be putting racing results together, going to the shop, making coffee, wh whatever it is, just behind the scenes and seeing how it worked. And that was just incredible. That was amazing being 13. That wouldn't happen now because you're not allowed to have kids of that age going into radio stations. So again, it was a different time. Uh, and, then, and then at the end of the first month, I got a letter through the post from them and a cheque for £20. Wow. And I was and I was getting paid five pounds for going in on a Saturday afternoon. So I wasn't expecting to get paid. And I know it doesn't sound a lot now, but we're talking 1986. I was 13. Yeah. And that was just, <laughs> just insane. But it was the experience. It was just the, you know, seeing, you know, working with people like Jonathan Agnew and Ian Carter and Nick Mullins who have all gone on to, you know, have really good sort of broadcasting careers um, obviously, Jonathan is the, is the BBC's cricket correspondent. Ian's the BBC's golf correspondent. Nick Mullins commentates and gone BT uh, around the world on, on you know rugby union. Uh, and you just watch these people, and you you see what's happening, and you you learn about editing tapes. Now, again, I don't know whether you're of the generation, Derek, whether you you had to edit tape. You know, and obviously it's all done on sort of computers now. Yeah. We'd have real to real tape, and we'd take out these big things called ewers big heavy things wow. and uh, if the tape wasn't clean when you got back you had what was it whatever was on it before and what was recorded on it and then now bear in mind this is in the BBC Derek <laughs> in sort of you know late 80s early 90s you put the reel-to-reel -reel on the machines and do you know how we edited the tapes have you got any idea what, what idea. We, 
Well, what we did, you had like a little yellow Chinagraph pencil where you'd mark where you wanted to make the edits. In this sort of editing booth, we had razor blades. No. We had razor blades. I, I mean, health and safety, <laughs> there were razor blades all over the place. And then you'd put the little bit of tape on, you'd chop where you wanted to chop, and then take out the other bit, and you'd get the razor blade to get a little bit of sticky tape, put it down like that, and then you put it back on the machine and listen to it. And if it wasn't right, then you had to go and untake the tape off with the razor blade. And, wow. Uh, and, and you had the, the bit that you cut out, you had to keep somewhere in case you needed to put it back in again. Razor blades. We were just, I mean, this was, even, even when I left the Beeb in, what, 96, that's still what we were doing. I mean, it was di different times, but yeah. wonderful experience. Great, great to, you know, to learn through all that and I was I think I did my first football match when I was uh probably 14 it was a local football game and then I covered basketball when I was 15 didn't know the rules of basketball obviously back then no internet to search the rules so I just sat with a guy and he explained what was going on he just learned on the job and and then I, I decided to leave school got offered a job on a local newspaper did that went into uh, got poached for a press agency, did that, and covering magistrates' courts and all sorts of things, and then got into the BBC full-time when I was 19. And it just, I kind of look back now and think, oh, it all just seems a bit surreal. And then sports editor when I was 21, you know, I mean, the BBC giving a sports producer, sports editor's job to somebody when they're 21. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, Derek. I'll be honest, I don't know what I'm doing now. So I certainly didn't know what I was doing when I was, uh, you know, when I was 21. But it, it was just, you know, great memories, great times. And somehow, somehow, after 30 odd years, I'm still managing to smuggle a living doing this. Um, yeah. You know, well, you must I, laugh, right, Jeff. I was going to say what, what I laughingly call a career. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the basketball. I was asked to do a, a Glasgow Rocks game. I mean, a, a few years ago now, and it was. Again, I'm, I'm the, I was like you, I had no idea, but there was somebody, there's an old woman next to me telling me, you say this, you say that sort of thing. But uh, it's so fast, it's not, it's not until you're actually down courtside, isn't it? You're, you're like, this is going like 200 miles an hour, this. Crazy. Mm. It, it's one thing kind of writing about it, it's another thing actually broadcasting, because it is so fast moving and you had to learn all the things. I mean, generally, I was just doing um, reports. I was just doing... Um, you know, maybe interviews afterwards, but then I did end up doing some some commentaries. So I would have been 15, 16, and I think the Leicester City Riders, as they were back then, they got to the, I remember going down to London and they were played in some final. And it was, again, just all bits of great experience. And when people say to me now, you, know, you get people in universities and who are studying, and I'll often go to universities and talk to them about, about what I do. And I always say to them, this is not a real job. It's not a proper job. You're getting paid to watch sport, talk about it. It's not. It's not a real job. You're not working in a in a um, factory in Indonesia for a you know for a pound an hour. You're not stacking shelves. You're getting paid to watch. Not. Not. There's anything wrong with those jobs, but yeah. you're getting paid to watch football and, and talk about football. So don't you know keep keep it sort of steady. But I say to them, look, just go and do whatever experience you can. Work, go onto a local radio station or newspaper or sit at a game with somebody and I try and help people out and do that and say, look, this is what we do, just to give them a bit of a flavour and a bit of an insight. Because people helped me out when I was young, so if I can help them. Um, but doing all those things, even magistrates court reporting, that wasn't something that I particularly wanted to get into. And when I first started doing it, 
I, I sort of had this routine of how I would how I would just write my eight paragraphs of somebody had been done bound over to keep the peace for having a drunken fight or whatever it was. And then the more I did it, the more I could write stories that were a bit more uh, a bit more colourful. I remember I had a front page in the Leicester Mercury. You didn't get a byline because I was an agency reporter, but uh, it, you know, great experience, and you learn learn so much about the law and um but i just think you've got to do so many so many different things to get that experience yes i wanted to do sport but it was it was it was good doing all that and and certainly now i mean people say well do you want to go into do you want to go into newspapers or do you want to go into websites or do you want to go into radio or do you want to go into tv i think i think now you've just got to multitask you've just got to be able to try and do as much of those different things. You see the newspaper journalists, they all do videos, don't they, after games for the social media channels. It's changed so much um, and you have to adapt with it. Simple as that. You've got to try and adapt or, you know, it is difficult times for a lot of people in a lot of uh, walks of life, but particularly in written and broadcasting, etc. So you, you, you just have to try and have as many strings to your bow as, as possible and, you know, Fortunately, I'm still winging it after all this time. In terms of the, the football commentary, can you remember the, the first game that you did? Uh, and, and I mean, <laughs> I, I, were, you, were you nervous going into that? It was, I'm pretty sure it was September 1993 and it was Middlesbrough against Leicester and myself and Neville Folger, we went up to commentate. Uh, Neville was the, the main Leicester reporter. But back then... We didn't do that many commentaries. Now, like local radio now, and for many years, they all do local radio, BBC stations do commentary on the local teams. But back then, commentaries weren't that sort of popular. They weren't really as in vogue as, as, as they became. And it was expensive to do it as well. This was before we had what we know as ISDN. You had to book lines, BT lines through Birmingham. And sometimes you would share commentaries with the other radio station. We had, we had, a, we had a, a time when it was Bristol City against Leicester City and the Radio Bristol commentator would refer to them as City, whereas Leicester fans who would be listening on Radio Leicester would be thinking, well, hang on, yeah. City are going forward here, you've got a chance, don't... And <laughs> it's kind of stuff that you think, that would never happen, but it, but it, but it did. But, um, so we went up to Middlesbrough I have no recollection of being nervous at all. Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't, I don't know. I do remember the game. I remember we did it on a, we did it down a phone line. We had this bit of kit that plugged into the phone and we could put our headphones and, uh, and Steve Walsh got stretched off. He was I'm pretty sure he was the Leicester captain at the time. Um, and I think his, I think his wife was listening to the commentary and, you know, the things you don't sort of think about, how distressing it must have been to hear, oh, your husband's looks like a terrible injury, he's being stretched off and everything. I think Leicester lost 2-0 that night, but that was my first one. Um, and then as time went on, I started doing a few more. And then the following year, the greatest moment of my life at that point, I commentated at Wembley when Leicester beat Derby 2-1 in the playoff final. They'd lost the previous two years and I'd been doing pitch side. Um, and then they beat Derby and I was commentating and just commentating for the BBC when I was 21. It just sounds in... That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Leicester won and got promoted and it was an incredible experience. And I thought, well, that's it. That's my, that's my career highlight. Nothing is ever going to be... It's going to come close to that as, 
as an experience. Yeah. And certainly as a Leicester fan. And then 2015, 2016 came along and Premier League and just... Thank you for smiling down on us that season. <laughs> Talking about that playoff final, like you say, going to the old Wembley. First of all, I mean, the old Wembley, what's your, what's your memories of that, Jeff? And being a fan, like you said, they're reporting on that. I guess you'd, you'd be up, jumping up and down in the press box. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the, the first two years, Gleish side, 93 Swindon, and lost to a debatable penalty on, on both of them. And it was great sort of being there, being at Wembley, because it's such an iconic venue, and Leicester had never won at Wembley. Uh, four playoff final, four FA Cup finals they'd lost, um, and then the, obviously playoff, the, the two playoff finals. So in that in that third one, you're thinking, is it going to be third time lucky? It's Leicester's seventh trip to to Wembley. Is it going to be seventh heaven? Uh, and obviously, it turned out that it was. Uh, listen back to my commentary now, and I wasn't I wasn't screaming and yelling. I've never been a I've never really been a real screamer. Yell. I think I'm relatively measured when I when I'm doing commentaries. Um, which some people like and some people prefer the, the outright. It kind of depends on the moment of the game. So like the Aguero moment, you go absolutely batshit crazy at that because that is just such a key moment. You know, if, you're, if, you're, if, if it's a, an FA Cup third round tie against a non-league team and Leicester score a fifth minute goal, then you don't go batshit crazy because it's, you, you sort of pick your moment. So Leicester had been one nil down, they equalised, uh, and then I think it was about four minutes to go. Leicester got the winner, so I was, I was commentating on that. So when I listened back to that, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't go that mad because I, I had a job to do. Yeah. I was I was having to I was having to broadcast that day. So I had Neville Folger, who was the other commentator, and we had Gary Mills, who was the Leicester club captain. He was injured. Who led the team out at Wembley, and he came and joined us to summarise. He went batshit crazy when that goal went in. And he was screaming, go, Walshiger, oh, Walshiger. So you can hear him in the background. And he got my co-commentator, Neville, in a headlock. And he's going, oh, well, come on, whoa. So he's going like that. Is this going to be third time lucky for Leicester City? Steve Walsh with there. Oh, what drama here at Wembley Stadium. Um, you know, I, obviously, I was relatively excited without going too OTT. But then to my right, there was a co-commentator in the summarizer and the co-commentator's in a headlock. <laughs> Obviously, I was, as a Leicester fan, absolutely thrilled, delighted. We were in the big time. It was going to mean going to all the big grounds to do commentaries the next season, et cetera, et cetera. And just Leicester winning at Wembley. It was, a, it, was a, it was a fabulous day and a really, really enjoyable experience. Yeah, and, and being, being a young guy like that, Jeff, and hanging about with these, uh, these players that you looked up to and sort of stuff, it must have been great fun to do. Yeah, it was a very it was a very different different time back then because you had you had a lot of access. Yeah. To in, through the nineties, I would go out, you know, I, I, I would go out drinking with footballers, um, which stuff you don't kind of that doesn't really sort of happen now. You'd have, yeah. I mean, I've got I've got numbers for, a, you know, a few footballers and managers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, now, but back then you you could just ring somebody up and say, "How you doing?" You know. You, you want to go out this weekend? And I remember being out with uh, Pontus Kamark, who, oh, yeah. uh, who played for Sweden in the 1994 World Cup, and they got to the semi-finals. And he came and signed for Leicester. And he was into his music. And we just got chatting, and he was like, I'll oh, come round. And, and then we ended up sort of going out a few times. And, you know, young Swedish guy, very attractive, 
So it was, I, I like being around him because he got, he got a lot of attention and, you know, I was sort of there as well. And we got on very well. And it's weird, he's still, even after all these years, 25 odd years, he still will ring me up out of the blue and say, hey, Jeff, how are Leicester doing? And, you know, when he comes over to do games, still keep in contact. But there's so many of the, the people from that era that, that played. Ewan Roberts, I saw him the other night. He was doing some BBC Wales work. You know, Ewan's a you know, great guy. I see Steve Walsh around. Likes of Matt Elliott and Jerry Taggart. Uh, Tony Cotty, another great guy. So many of these people that you would report and commentate on that you sort of get to know pretty well. And you become very you know friendly with and on some occasions you know you go out and you go out and have a drink and Simon Grayson actually the former Leeds and Blackpool manager uh, Huddersfield various others he, he came and signed for Leicester and I was 19 and I interviewed him down at the training ground and I said oh where have you lived and he said oh I've got a place in Weston and I said oh that's not far from me I, I'm thinking of buying a house this was in the times Derek when when you were 19 you could think about getting a mortgage, whereas not, it's, not, it's not really too easy to do that these days. So I was very, very lucky. And he said, Simon said, well, why don't come around the house for a coffee? And they're, building, they're still building um, on the estate, they're building like lots of new houses. Come and have a coffee and then go and have a look around the, you know, the, the, the place. Oh. So, yeah, so I, I was like, yeah, okay. And didn't, sort of, didn't think anything of it, because it was just like, come round. So I went round, had a coffee, looked at this house. Went round and looked at some houses, ended up buying one on the same road, about five doors down. And, uh, and so we would see each other a lot out and about. And, and he, actually, he actually came to my 21st birthday uh, party, wow. which was, again, there was a local football where, actually where Leicester play their under 23 games now, there was where, near where we live. So we, we had it in there and he, he came along to that. And you, you, just, you just had this access to, to footballers and, and I'll be honest, I think I wanted to be mates with footballers. I wanted to be, I wanted to be pals with them because I thought that's cool being friends with footballers. Yeah. Um, now I see it slightly differently. I, I, want, I want a bit more distance um, from, a, from a professional point of view. Um, and they're, just, they're just people, right? They're just, you know, it's a blessing that I know people in football, the managers and players and referees and that kind of thing. And occasionally I'll message them or I'll speak to them after a game. But I try, I, don't, I try not to get too pally with people because I like to, I like to give a bit of a, bit of a professional distance. Um, but yeah, great times. And it, we're so lucky doing what we're doing, going to football, getting paid to watch football and working with some of these absolute greats. Emil Heskey, absolute diamond of a bloke. And I commentated on his first ever game when he was 17 down at QPR for Leicester and and then in 2016 when we went to Los Angeles he was my I commentated the club I was working for the club and he was my summariser in Los Angeles as Leicester played Paris Saint-Germain in a pre-season friendly <laughs> and I'm going I'm working with Emil Heskey you know and, yeah and it's just I kind of pinch myself there's so many things that have happened I just pinch myself I've just been so lucky I don't know I don't know what I, what I did so right in a previous life that someone went, you will have all these nice things happen. It's not, it's not all been a bed of roses. There have been ups and downs. There have been downs along the way. But just, yeah. And I'm, so, I'm still grateful now for doing it because it's, it's, it's great fun. Yeah. Has, was, has there been any uh, tough interviews that you've had with any, I don't know, players or managers that you, you've, you've sort of got their back up a little bit? 
there's one that stands out from, a, from, from the mid-90s. I went to interview the Leicester chairman at the time, Martin George, and it was pre-season and they'd not been spending money and the fans sort of kind of wanted to know what the club was doing. And, and I, at that time, I was of the mindset that I'm BBC, I have to get the story, I have to ask, the, I have to do this, and, you know, sort of your Jeremy Paxman kind of hard-hitting kind of thing. Whereas as you get older, I think you kind of learn there's more than one way to skin a cat. You learn how to ask questions without coming across as extremely difficult. Listen, politics is very different where you, you, you have to hold them to, to account and basically nail them to a wall and say, why are you doing this, why are you doing that? With football, it's slightly different because you have to have a relationship with these people, but you also have to ask the qu difficult questions. So you have to learn a way of doing it. Now, back then, I, I didn't have the experience. I was 22. I just went, you know, I wanted to know, why are you not doing this, why, you know? So we did this, so I was asking him these questions and about halfway through, he just got up and walked out. <laughs> I was like, so I said, and the chairman has just walked out of the office. And in my head, I'm thinking, this is gold. Yeah. This is absolute gold. And the press officer came, back, came in and said, uh, okay, right, we've got a couple of choices here. You can either start the interview again um, or we can just leave it. And I thought, and I said, well, I've already got, you know, I've already been asked a load of questions. We don't need to go over that again. He said, well, you either start again or you leave. Now, I would have said, okay, we'll start again, but, I'll, but then I will ask the same questions or similar questions. Uh, but I went, all right, I'll, I'll leave with what I've got because I thought I've got a bit of, you know, and him walking out sounds great. Yeah. So from the 10 minutes, 15 minutes from getting from the stadium back to the radio station and I get to my desk and there's a note on my desk saying from the station manager please come and see me ASAP so I went upstairs and he said oh so what happened in this interview then so he'd obviously he'd obviously already the club had obviously contacted him and he said uh he said, we can't use the interview and I said well why not he said well it's it's not it's not a complete interview it's not finished so you can't use it I said, well I wasn't the one that ended it. He was the one that walked out. That was, that was his choice. Yes, but the club gave you a, an opportunity to, to do it all again. Um, and I was, I was fuming. I was raging because I thought, well, this is, this is good radio. He, he, he's, he's got the hump that I've been asking difficult questions and he's just decided to piss off out of the, out of the room, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, now I understand that the radio station, their view was... We have to have a relationship with the club, so we have to manage it. Is it worth, is it worth dying on a hill over this? Uh, and the, the, obviously the, the boss decided that it wasn't worth having a big fallout because they might have stopped us having access or doing commentaries, et cetera, et cetera. So he took that view. So I kind of understand that. But with the BBC, you know, they've had incidents where there have been the players won't talk to this or you know, the manager won't talk to that. And they've gone, no, we, we stick by our, our guy. There's, there's, there's always a balance to be struck. But I always, I always remember that one, that he walked out. I thought, maybe I've just been asking the best questions that have really knocked him. But what I should have done was, was be a bit more clever in how I asked the questions. And I think now, and we, you know, we talk about this, Derek, when we're, when we're at games, 
how you, you, you sort of think, how am I going to talk about this subject, but without coming across as, you know, overly, overly difficult is that there's always a, there's always a balance to be struck that you want to ask the questions, but you don't want to come across as sort of too abrasive because clubs can just turn around and say, well, we're not giving you this. We're not giving you that. Um, and, and you have to work with clubs. We had an incident. There was, I, I won't, I won't name names, but I did a, I did a brilliant interview with, uh, and I wasn't brilliant. I just asked average questions, but the, 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 the you know, it was a top, top name Premier League footballer who was being being linked with playing for England and his manager didn't want too much of that kind of talk because mm -hmm. he wanted to concentrate on the club itself uh, and the, so, so the club went look okay we'll do, we'll do a deal with you you can put out I don't want those that two questions that you did with him on England, I don't want that going out on all the social media because it would just inflame it and then the manager, manager will be on my case and blah, blah, blah. Um, but you can put the interview out and the story out at 12.30 when the game kicks off. But yeah. I don't want a big, I don't want a big, uh, I mean, he didn't say anything, you know, mega outrageous. He said, love to play for England. It's always been a dream. It's all about how well I play for the club, et cetera, et cetera. So instead, you know, we didn't want to, really annoy the club I mean we could have just turned around and went we've done the interview we've got it we can run it and we can put it on socials and this that and the other but sometimes you go what are we going to gain from it versus what are we going to lose from it and the compromise was we can run it um, but in the half hour hour building up to the game but not in the two days before where it's going to make all kind of you know, headlines. So you look, but you learn so much as you go along. I mean, Derek, I'm sure you, from when you started out to where you are now, you have that, sort of, it, it's a different, you just learn, you just learn how to, to do things better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to uh, speak a little bit about um, Martin O'Neill's reign at, at Leicester, Jeff, because of course you wrote a, a book about his time there. Um, what did you make uh, Leicester back then? Of course, it was a, a, a great time for the club, wasn't it? Martin O'Neill did a fantastic job at Leicester. Um, he came in December 95. I was still the local radio guy, so I was interviewing him on a regular basis. They had a really poor run until, you know, up until the March. And there was a, there was a game against Sheffield United where they lost 2-0. I was actually covering a cricket tour in South Africa at the time. So I actually missed this game. But there were protests after the game. The fans were telling... Martin to F off and uh, oh, it was it was just carnage it was just carnage and the, it had not been a not been a great start and then suddenly after that every and he, Martin was getting all sorts of letters of in the days when people wrote letters to managers <laughs> telling him where he was going wrong and how much he disliked and then people were coming on the phone-ins uh, but then it just clicked through that sort of early April May period and Leicester managed to get into the playoffs uh, and they eventually won the playoff final. Steve Claridge, one of his signings, he signed Neil Lennon as well. Muzzy, is it? Uh, they, all, they all came in during that period, towards the end of that season. And they all made a massive difference. And Claridge scored the, uh, the winning goal at Wembley against Crystal Palace. The one where he said, oh, you know, I shinned it in the top corner in the, it was in the last minute of extra time. 
Uh, had Leicester not got promoted, I think Martin probably would have been sacked. I think the board would have gone for, for something else. But then, um, and, and, and after he got them promoted, and obviously he was going to keep his job after that, he actually picked up the phone. He kept all the letters that he got sent, and he would pick up the phone and he would say, um, yeah, Joe Bloggs, it's, uh, it's Martin O'Neill here. I've got this letter you wrote me uh, at the end of March when you told me to do this and do that and do the other. I'm just ringing to just check you're happy with things now. Like, oh, Martin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very happy. Thank you. Sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to. I mean, but typical Martin. You know, yeah. typical Martin. First season in the Premier League. They finished ninth. Yeah. I mean, with, until about three games to go, they still could have gone down. It was a very tight division. But they finished ninth uh, and won the League Cup. You know, he won, he, he won Leicester a League Cup, which in, in his first season, in the first full season. Uh, two years later, got to another League Cup final, lost to Spurs. Year after, got to another League Cup final with beat second division Tranmere. So when he left, he'd got three League Cup finals, two League Cup wins, and four top 10 Premier League finishes. They finished ninth, 10th, 10th, and 8th. And for a club like Leicester at that time, that was amazing. It was amazing. And I, and I remember saying to, when I was at Hillsborough for the League Cup replay in 97 against Middlesbrough, again, Claridge scored the winner. A kid next to me, probably eight years old with his dad. I said to him, make the most of this. Honestly, enjoy this moment. Leicester winning a major trophy. Enjoy this moment. This, it will never get any better for, for Leicester. This is it. This is it. Honestly, enjoy this. And obviously, three years later, we won the League Cup again. And then, Almost 20 years later, there was the, the fairy tale of all fairy tales with the, with the, with the Premier League. But um, no, what Martin did, he was, he, was just, he was just brilliant. He knew how to get players together and get the best out of players. There were some from that time who have sort of said subsequently they didn't necessarily like him massively, but they would have run through a brick wall for him. Yeah. And that's... That's kind of what Martin did at the time. He had that, he just knew, and he got like John Robertson with him and Steve Walford, and they worked so well as a team. And Martin was uh, not a clone of Cluffy, but he definitely got some of those, um, some of those things. Uh, there were a few ups and downs. There, were, there was a, a trip to La Manga where um, Stan Collymore set up a fire extinguisher. And um, yeah, that was, Martin was due to... Yeah, so Martin was due to fly out, and anyway, it all it all gone off, and they'd all got drunk and what have you. Uh, anyway, and then Ian Marshall tells the story how he got John Robertson's phone, and he said, "Let me ring Martin." Anyway, he leaves a voicemail on Martin's phone saying, uh, "Hello, Gaffer. Look forward to seeing you out here. We're all having a good time. See you." Blah blah blah. Anyway, it all fire extinguishers, a whole mess. Anyway, the club got sent home the next day, so they all got sent home in disgrace. And they had a meeting at one of the hotels and they're all sitting there in a conference sense suite with all the chairs in, in lines. They're all sitting there with their heads down. Uh, Martin O'Neill comes in and he just blows his top at the players and he singles out this one and that one and, and the other one. And he sits to Ian Marshall and he points at him uh, and says, Marshy, you are not good enough as a footballer to be able to ever ring me. Do never, do not ever ring me again and leave me a message. <laughs> Worse than that. Um, he, he, was, he was entertaining. He yeah. could be difficult at times. 
but on the field, you look, you look what he did. He was just, he was just fantastic. We didn't always get on well, I have to say. Yeah. Because I, I left in the summer of 96 to go and work abroad. I went to Ibiza and then went to Egypt to DJ. And I thought, I'd like to write a book about his first two years in charge. So I thought, I'll have a go at doing that. I went down to see him and he said he didn't fancy doing an interview at that moment in time. And I thought, okay, fair enough. But I thought I'd still go and do it anyway. So I wrote a book saying his first two years at Leicester were brilliant. He is great. The club need to hold on to him. He's clearly a bit of a genius. Yeah. He's wonderful. So it was a very positive, because that first two years were great. Uh, the club weren't very happy. Martin wasn't very happy. I think the club were going to do their own book. So Martin, in his column, in his programme column, um, he basically slagged me off, <laughs> saying, <laughs> oh, you know, you may have seen that a book has been written about me. Not by, he didn't put by a former BBC journalist. He put by, uh, by a holiday rep who was written. Because I'd gone to Ibiza to be a, to be a holiday rep. When I, when I left the BBC. So he described me as a, as a former holiday, rather than former BBC. But yeah. he was, anyway, he was having a pop and uh, I couldn't sell the book in the club shop. So I think they were going to do their own and it, I think it sort of, so that annoyed them and Martin was irate with it. And so anyway, so he slagged me off in his, in his column, which was you know, quite, quite entitled to do. But the book was just, it spoke so warmly and wonderfully about him. It wasn't a hatchet job or anything. It was just really positive. But Martin could be a bit like that. And, some, and then, you know, over the years, two, three years later, when I got back into radio, uh, our paths would cross. And I was thinking, oh, shit, what's he going to say? Is he... And I was like, just want to, you know, sorry if I caused you any problems yeah. in you know, 98 with that book. It wasn't my intention or whatever. And it was just kind of, you know, Martin, listen, okay, well, no. it's okay, Jeff, it's okay, it's gone. It's enough, the chapter's closed, it's gone. Okay. And brilliant, I love Martin. And the last time I saw him was, oh, a year or so back when he, was at, when he went to Nottingham Forest. The day he was appointed, I went and did a piece with him. And, uh, and he still made some comment about, uh, oh, you know, are the crazy people still, Leicester fans still ringing the phone-ins? Are they still writing letters to the manager? You know, he doesn't forget nothing. He's such a bright man. Yeah. He's an incredibly bright man, Martin O'Neill. And, and obviously he left, um, you know, he left Leicester to take that step down to uh, sell. Sorry, he, he left Leicester <laughs> to take that step up to, just to Celtic, just in case Chris Sutton's watching. Um, and you can understand, you know, Celtic were his, were his club. Why he'd want to go there? And he took Neil Lennon. And, uh, and I always looked out for Celtic. Uh, Leicester fans didn't really feel any bitterness about him going there. It was kind of, well... That's what he wants to do. He's been great for us. Yeah. Off you go. We should stay. But um, so I always looked out for Celtic's results, and uh, I wanted them to do well. I, you know, I'm, I'm neither Celtic or Rangers. I don't have a. You know, I think my grandma was a Protestant, uh, but you know, she died when I was about two. So I don't. So I, I've got a bit of Scottish. Yeah, doesn't really I'm matter. Not, but, but yeah, but I'm not really. Celtic or Rangers, but with Martin there, and then obviously Neil Lennon went. I used to go out, and Neil Lennon bought me my first ever pint of Guinness. Random fact. There you go. Uh, on a on a on a night out, uh, and Steve Guppy went there as well. I always got on well with Steve Guppy, so they went up. So I always look out for Celtics Celtics results, um, and then obviously we've had another, 
it's gone the other way recently with obviously Brendan Rodgers coming to Leicester and the Celtic fans losing their absolute minds about that. <laughs> yeah. why, would, why would he want to swap immortality for mediocrity? I know. I, I, listen, football fans, football fans think that their club is the biggest and best club in the world yeah. and anyone who leaves them is some kind of traitor or this, that and the other. And it's, it's, you know, I think Brendan was quite hurt by some of the criticism that he got. And, you know, he got some stick from his own family as well, you know, Celtic fans. Yeah. Um, but while Celtic might be a massive, massive football club in terms of its support, in, in football terms, managing in the Premier League is, is huge as well. Yeah. So, um, you know, you can understand why Martin went from Leicester to Celtic then, and you can understand why Brendan went from Celtic to, uh, to, to Leicester now. But Martin was, Martin was great value, and I, I always enjoy his punditry on the telly or the radio. And if I bump into him, I always enjoy talking to him. And I'm, I'll be honest, I'm still scared of him. I was, I was, I was scared of him back then. I'm still, I'm still a bit, bit scared of him now. But I mean, he's a love. He is, he is, he is a lovely guy. Yeah, it was a golden time, of course, for Leicester. But no one could envisage when Claudio Ranieri um, racked up at, at Leicester that things would would propel onto some sort of crazy stardom and, and win the league. Of course, when when he turned up at Leicester, Jeff, what what were you thinking when, when you seen him there? Well, obviously, Nigel Pearson had. Uh, had you know, had two spells at the club. We got them out of League One, got them into the playoffs, left, came back, got them into the playoffs, won the championship, got them into the Premier League. The great escape, the end of the season, the players were playing brilliant. I, you know, I, I love Nigel Pearson. He's, he's, um, a lot of people don't get to see the side that some of us guys see as, as media. And obviously he'd gone. It was like, OK, well, who are we going to replace him with? And Claudio Ranieri came in. I remember being in the gym and it, it was announced. I was like, Claudio Ranieri? I don't know about this. I'm not sure. Is this, is this the right appointment? He's just had a spell with Greece where it's been terrible and he was the tinker man. And is, is he going to be the right one? But then you kind of go, well, we'll find out, won't we? We'll find out in the first 10 games or first season or whatever. And then suddenly... You win a game and you win a game and you draw a game and you win and you win and you draw. Oh, we lost a game, but then you win and then you win and then you win and then you draw and then you. And it's just hang on a second. This is this is rather good. They've taken a momentum. And Claudio was great for the media because he would just he would basically say nothing of substance in his interviews, but he would drop in a when players get clean sheet, I buy them pizza. They get pizza, uh, and so when they did keep a clean sheet, finally. Um, he took them for a, and they went and had a pizza making afternoon. You know, great team bonding kind of thing. And then there was all the dilly ding, dilly dong. Uh, and, and just, you know, we get to 40 points. That's what we're aiming for. And, and he, just kept, he just kept a very measured approach to that, that whole season. And the players were just being brilliant. The players were just grinding out results uh, and being relentless. And everybody went, well, they won't win the league because it's Leicester. Well, yeah, they won't win the league. You know, you were there. You know, you saw a lot of it as well, Derek. And Leicester would just win games and just keep marching, just be in. The, they'll be fourth or third or second or top. And then they went. Oh no, they won't win the league. And then they went to Man City, and they won three-one. And then suddenly people were going. This was the February, and people went. Actually, 
Maybe, maybe. And then they lost to Arsenal on Valentine, I think it was Valentine's weekend, to a last-minute goal. And it was like, oh, well, that's it. Leicester are done now. That's the... They did not lose another game after that. That was, a, that was a turning point because they used that as a... You know, Arsenal looked like they'd won the league. You know, all the selfies in the dressing room afterwards. They were doing all the, yeah, all kind of things. And, and I think Leicester players looked at that. Robert Huth, I think, came out and said, yeah, we looked at that and went, right, come on then. And there were just so many moments, so many brilliant moments. There was a midweek round in March where Leicester played on the Tuesday and the other three teams played on the Wednesday. And Leicester drew at home with West Brom. Uh, and everyone went, oh, that's it. You know, Leicester went from being favourites to fourth favourites. But if you can't beat West Brom at home, you're not going to win the league. Yeah. You can only, you're only getting a point. The following night, the three other teams, Spurs, Man City, I can't remember who the other team was, Arsenal, Liverpool, they lost. So within 24 hours, Leicester had gone from being favourites to fourth favourites, back to favourites again. They were actually a point better off than the other teams. And the whole narrative was, well, they'll fade away. Spurs, we're coming for you. Leicester will fade away. And then... Miracle of miracles, Leicester didn't fade away and in the end won the title by 10 points. Yeah, Leicester not only won the, they won it by 10 points. I mean, that's <laughs> just everything about that season is insane. And I look back at it and I, I, I you know, occasionally will well, go on YouTube and watch some, some old highlights. And I saw Jamie Vardy's 100 goal. I went and sat, sat through all his 100 goals and obviously there was quite a lot in that season. And just, you just watch it and go, how the hell did, did, did all that happen? How? And then obviously won the, won the title and the Everton game and I'm working for the club and I'm on the pitch and I'm standing there while Bocelli's singing before the game and <laughs> tingling magic. And then we play a football match, we win a football match. And then afterwards there's all the processes of, of the things but the stage being built and I'm there and I'm on the pitch and I'm describing and here comes this player and here comes that player and I'm 10 yards away from where they're going to lift the trophy uh, Wes Morgan lifts the trophy into the sky and I'm stood 10 yards from the, and I just looked around and I'm getting paid to do this this is just this is insane how, how, how did this happen <laughs> and so not, not only did my football team achieve something that I thought would never happen uh, not in my lifetime, not in kids' lifetime, not in grandkids' lifetime or anything. And there's me on the pitch and I'm describing what's happening. And I've got a photo with the trophy, which is my favourite, favourite photo that I've ever had taken. And it was just mad, just crazy. And it's hard to put into words. And I think a lot of fans from other clubs, perhaps apart from Spurs, were all kind of like, go on, Leicester. But this was, this was front page news. This was... I remember going to the night, the night they won it and I was in the pub and I'd gone to the ground and then ended up in town and Robert Hooth was handing out shots and a very messy night. I got in about five in the morning. Um, but it, it was, you know, I was looking at all the, the TV channels from around the world and, you know, Sky News, BBC News, you know, BBC 10 o'clock, BBC 10 o'clock news is, is a massive thing. Their lead story that night was Leicester City have won the Premier League. It was a news story, not just a sports story. And it was around the world. And I'd get calls from New Zealand and Australia and America and um, South Africa to, to go on to radio stations to talk about what was happening and what had happened. The, the interest in it was just insane. I will never, ever tire of thinking about it, watching it, or talking about it. 
but I'm sure I don't think it will ever probably sink in that little old Leicester did did what we did. Just mad, but the best thing. Yeah, and of course they played in the Champions League that the next season. They done pretty well in there as well. So. You, I mean, it just continued, didn't it? You're just thinking, when will this end? It ended, of course, when Ranieri got the bullet, but I guess that's just modern football for you. Yeah. Um, obviously, the group stages were brilliant. Qualified with... Uh, won the group with a game to, game to spare. I mean, that was... <laughs> I, remember going to, I remember going to Brussels for the, for the first game against Bruges and won 3-0. And going, wow. Not only are we... Did we tear things up in the Premier League? We're, we're, we're doing all right in the Champions League. We're not going to win the Champions League, are we? <laughs> uh, so we won, we, we won the group um, and then played uh, Sevilla. We went over to Spain. We lost 2-1. Ranieri was sacked the next day. Uh, it was the right decision. Yeah, thanks. It was, it was 100% the right decision because Leicester were going to get relegated if he stayed. He, as great as he was in the first season, he... And I, I don't like to talk badly about him, um, but he lost the plot in that second season. People go, oh, it was the players, it was the players. Well, hang on. You've got to give the players the credit for winning the league and then give the players the criticism for having a shit next season. Or you credit the manager for winning the league, then the manager has to take the, the, the stick. But Claudio, I love the guy, but he just got so much wrong in that second season. So anyway, so Claudio left, Craig Shakespeare took over. We won the second leg against Sevilla, one of my favourite nights in, right. in broadcasting. Morgan scored, or Brighton scored. I was on Talk Sport when I was just doing a report and saying Leicester are leading 1-0, it's 2-2 on aggregate. Um, and then, oh, hang on, here's a chance for Mark Brighton, you know, and oh, Brighton, and I got quite excited on that. Sevilla missed a penalty, or Casper Schmeichel made a brilliant save. Anyway, and, and, and Leicester managed to win through and get... Oh, hang on, we're in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Obviously, we ended up getting knocked out by Atletico Madrid. But we gave it, we gave it a real go. And again, just never in my wildest dreams did I think Leicester would ever be in a Champions League position. You know, maybe we'd finish sixth or seventh one year at best. And maybe if two or three of the top teams were all banned from European competition, <laughs> then we might have a chance of getting in the Champions League, but kind of Europa League at best, that's, that's what we might get. But yes, quarterfinal. And we were the, I remember people saying, oh yeah, but the coefficient, the, uh, the English team's coefficient is going to take a real battering with Leicester in it. And as it turned out, Leicester were the team that went the furthest that season. Leicester were the only British team to make the, Champions League quarterfinals. Uh, again, another great ride. So many uh, brilliant nights at the King Power Stadium. And obviously I went to Bruges and Copenhagen, Seville and Madrid. I only missed Porto, which was the last group game, which Ranieri put out. He basically put out the second team and yeah. we lost 5-0. Uh, but it didn't really matter. But it didn't really matter by then. But again, just life is about memories. And obviously football is about memories as well. And so many... So many brilliant ones from from that. It was a shame about Ranieri. It was a shame that it didn't it didn't end in a better way. But we thank him for 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 what he did for the football club. Um, but it was ultimately the right decision when when they decided for him to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, from the euphoria, of course, uh, of that the Champions League winning the title and that, Jeff. Of course, we were there in the. The night the helicopter came down a, a couple of years ago, um, I just left just before it came down. You were there, of course. 
another surreal uh, night that was, wasn't it? How tough was that for you? I mean, to report on that, and I mean, it must. It's just it's, it's hard to it's hard to sort of comprehend. It was. I'm just getting goosebumps now. Thinking, you know, I get I get goosebumps for a good reason. Get goosebumps for a bad reason when it comes to you know when you talk about you talk about winning the Premier League, you talk about the Champions League, and then and then what happened that night? Just an awful tragedy where the times that we'd been at we'd been at games, Derek, and you'd see the helicopter take off after a match, and it was just kind of standard and. I'd been doing all my post-match interviews and I was just hanging around waiting for the traffic to, to clear and I'd just gone, just gone to leave and I got a text message saying, helicopters crashed. Mm. No, it, you know, it didn't seem real. And so I went back into the press room and there were people were sort of like furtively looking at each other. Anyway, so we went out and then we went around the side of the stadium and we could see a fire in the distance. That's, that's, it's not a helicopter crash. It can't be. It, it can't be that. It, it, that didn't. It didn't compute with me. It was just maybe it was a one of the outside broadcast TV trucks that had caught fire, or it could you know it could have been anything. But so then we went. We went back in to the press room, and we're all trying to make sense of it. And and then you know you're having to broadcast as well. So I was having to do stuff on Talksport and Talksport Two that evening, and and trying to do it in a professional way and. You know, I, I was at times, you know, I was just sitting there and tears coming down because it was, it, you couldn't make sense of it, but it was just a really horrible thing. And you thought, well, we knew that the, the, the vice chairman and the, and the director of football weren't on it, um, but we were pretty certain that the chairman was on it. And there's also that, you know, there's that feeling that a crash like that, nobody's going to survive it or it's, it's, going, it's going to take more than a 5,000 to one miracle for, for somebody to survive that. So you kind of knew, you knew what the end game was going to be. And then you're having to report on it and try and be as professional as possible. Uh, and it was just a horrible, dark time. Um, you know, I struggled, I struggled through periods of that, those, the kind of the two weeks, the two weeks after getting through it was, was, was very hard trying trying to be a broadcaster but being a fan as well and having been there that night and then suddenly you start thinking what if the what if the helicopter had crashed in the main stand then all the players were in there all the press were you know I might, I might have died and you start thinking what if which you can't you can't do yeah. uh but to deal with it was you know it was just the worst thing and then you go to the stadium the next day and everyone's laying flowers and People are just coming up to you, uh, who either you know or you don't know, and they might say, "That was a nice tribute you did," or they might say, "How, how you, you know?" People just come up and ask me how I was feeling because they knew I was a fan. So you're trying to be professional, but you're also you're a Leicester fan, and it was a very difficult balance to, to strike. And I kind of look back on most of it now, and it was it's it just a just it just a a real blur. And, and we had the game away at Cardiff, the first game yeah. back, and. I remember driving down there and you know I felt I felt I was in I was in quite a dark dark spot I think at that point um anyway so well the, the game Leicester went and won the game and then they had the uh the first home game against Burnley sort of two weeks after the crash and that was yeah, yeah, just 
And were you there that day for that? I think it that was there, yeah. Uh, again, yeah. it was just a, just surreal being there, wasn't it? It just didn't didn't feel real. Yeah, and and it was Remembrance Weekend as well, which is always very poignant. And Leicester have always done that very well. And and then the video is on the big screen before the game. Uh, it, it it was powerful and emotional, and I've got other stuff going on in my life at the time. And and I just remember that that night after the game, I went round to my mum's and I just I just sat on the sofa and I just I just sobbed my heart out in front of her. And, and I, just so many things it just kind of taken their toll on me. The next day I was I was going on holiday. I'd, I'd already booked it. I booked it well in advance, and I've never needed a holiday. Yeah. I've never needed a holiday as much as as I needed that just to get out, went to Mexico, just stop thinking, you know, try and stop thinking about, cause my, for two weeks, my head was just filled with seeing the flames and yeah. everything that had happened and just sitting on a beach and, and trying to, trying to clear my mind of all, of all the horrible stuff uh, and, and try and just have some normality. So I didn't read any of the, the news. I didn't, I was very limited with what I looked on my phone with social media because I didn't want to, you know, read anything about it. I just wanted to try and get away. And it was just brilliant to to do that and clear my mind and and and, and get away because it was I, yeah. I mean one one day I'll one day I'll sit down and I will I will I will let it all out. I will write and, and you know I've, I've just given you a very short version of it, but it was it was a very difficult, it was a very difficult thing to process. I wasn't close friends with him or anything. I'd met him a couple of times. He wouldn't have known me from Adam Vichai. Uh, but the whole, the whole thing I found very difficult. And it's not easy for, for us blokes to talk about yeah. going, having, you know, going through difficult things like that. It's not, it's not, it's not always easy, but um, you know, for, for Vichai and his family and the fa you know, family and friends of the others, they're the ones who are the, the, the important one in all this. Uh, just, just, yeah, I was a great man who did so much great work for the city and his son, hopefully he's going to carry on all that work. And, uh, it, I think I said at the time, you know, after the, after Leicester won the league, you had all the fans arriving at the stadium to celebrate. And then after the helicopter crash, all the fans arriving at the stadium to pay their respects, they'd gone from the highest high to the lowest low in the space of, uh, two years and you know, not the, the on-field fairy tale had a happy ending, but the overall story didn't. Um, and we will never, we will never forget what happened. And uh, as much as I try to not think about that time now and again, it just comes into your mind and you start going over things and yeah. and remembering how awful it awful it was but there's a remembrance garden there now and it's it i've not i've not gone yet i've not i've not gone and spent time there and i'm just waiting for the right time to to go and to go and do it but i think the club the club handled everything brilliantly um during that time very very hard to do but they 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 handled a very difficult situation with incredible sensitivity yeah absolutely um, of course, fast forward now to the, the present day and Leicester on the cusp again at a Champions League football after it. A little wobble, of course, Jeff, uh, under Brendan after a blistering start. What have you made since since Brendan um, came in? Um, I guess he's a breath of fresh air from, from Claude Puel, of course. But um, what have you made of Leicester? <laughs> Sorry to bring him up. 
Yeah, Claude Puel. Um, <laughs> as you know, Derek, and we spent time waiting for, for Claude to come out to do interviews for us to, to speak to him. And he would talk for five minutes. And at the end of it, you would look at me, I would look at you and go, got a fucking clue what he did. I've got no idea what he just sort of said then. It, 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 he was, and he was awful with the, anyway. Yeah. He was not good for the club in many ways. Uh, I think, I think he, well, he handled the helicopter crash situation. I thought he, he, he showed some, some good, um, dignity is not the right word. Of course he showed dignity, but he, I think he handled that situation very well. But sort of, with the players, he wasn't very good. And media, he wasn't very good. And then suddenly it's, well, who are we going to get? And then Brendan Rodgers' name was mentioned. And the Celtic fans went into meltdown. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to, you know, leave Celtic when he can get, you know, he can get the treble, treble. Why would he, why would he take such a massive step down to come to the left? A massive step down. But, he obviously decided that instead of waiting to the summer, yeah, he could have got ticked off another couple of trophies at Celtic and, and left in the summer and that kind of thing. But he wanted to get straight into it. And the whole place in the space of 48 hours from Claude Puel to Brendan Rodgers. And he just lifted the players, he lifted the staff, he lifted the fans. The players were, going, players were getting great results, um, had a really good end to the season. And then obviously up to December of this season, again, winning games, you know, beat Newcastle 5-0, Southampton 9-0. Yeah. You know, this is, which, uh, with respect, us people in England think, well, you might get that in Scotland, but yeah. you're not going to get that in England. Uh, you know, they were just, they were just sensational. And, and I just wonder whether some Celtic fans went, actually, I can see at why he looked at those players and thought, I want to work with them. I want to try and move them forward. Yeah, of course, there'd be a financial aspect of him coming to the Premier League. You know, of course there is. Uh, it's, it's tailed off since December, disappointment of the League Cup semi-final. And it's been a struggle since just before Christmas. Yeah. Leicester may well miss out on the Champions League after being in the positions for so long. And I think at the start of the season, if you said, oh, Leicester will finish fifth or sixth, you would get to the League Cup semi, FA Cup quarterfinal. You'd register the highest ever top flight away victory in England. Mm. You know, that's ever. <laughs> um, and you finish fifth or sixth, you would have said, well, that's a brilliant season. That's a, that, that, is a, that is a fantastic season. And it, and, it, and it would be a fantastic season. But from where they were to where they may well end up, then it's a, it's a disappointing finish to the season. They've not been able to sustain. And I, it's part of me that thinks it was always going to be impossible with, a, with that young sort of relatively inexperienced squad to be able to uh, keep it going. Obviously, you've got the likes of Kasper Schmeichel, Johnny Evans, uh, Jamie Vardy, three very experienced players, but there's a lot of, lot of young players often there'll be a, a starting lineup with six players under the age of 22 yeah. um but what brendan rogers has done he's he's a fantastic man manager he's great for us to deal with and the players the players really like him the fans really like him he's made one or two mistakes i think tactically here and there but you look at what he's achieved from where leicester were to where they are now and he has 
he has he has done wonders. He he really has. Um, I tell you what, as well, I want one other thing about him, and we get close to him when we interview him. He smells nice. <laughs> we do. Um, Daniel Daniel Farker is another one at Norwich. Whenever you get close to them to interview, they always they always yeah. you always go. Mm. <laughs> but then again, then again, these guys are earning ridiculous amounts of money, so they can afford the very, uh, very best, best after show. So Brendan, he's, no, he's, he's been very good for Leicester. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, finally, Jeff, um, I just want to ask you. Of course, you're, we're back at the football now. The, um, no fans, of course. What what have you made uh, reporting it at grounds with the? Uh, uh, nobody in them, of course. And do you think that the sort of lockdown measures in place? You, I mean, I felt I felt safe going to Leicester. I've been to Wigan as well. It's been pretty safe, but it just seems surreal um, going to these games when there's, when there's no spectators. Yeah, it's it is strange. It's odd. I feel perfectly safe. Um, there are enormous amount of restrictions. Obviously, when we we go to games, and we have to fill in forms and we get checked our, our temperature. Um, and it, I, I know I'm kind of getting used to it now. Kind of getting used to going to grounds where there are no fans. First three or four games I went to, you just go. It's like a training. It's like a training ground. It's not. It's, it's not right. Obviously, having not having fans, it, it isn't right. It isn't isn't what we want. But if it's a way of finishing the season with some kind of um, normality, if you like, and it's not normal, but it, it, it's it's getting the season finished. It's it's a means to an end. Having the no fans there, uh, it's not ideal. Um, I'm a bit more used to it now. I've been to been to Norwich a couple of times, been to Birmingham three times. Um, trying to think where trying to think where else I've been. Um, I've got I've got Leicester coming up. Uh, I'm going to Forest, going to Derby. Uh, every everyone's organising. I think everyone everyone's organised it really well. Uh, it's been it's been very impressively done. But it's it's not the same with that. You've got to have fans in there for, for the for the proper experience. But if it had been the choice of Finishing the season points per game, as they did in in, in other leagues, then actually as a Leicester fan, it probably would have uh, probably would have been better for me. We might have finished third in the table, but um, I, I, I want to, I'd rather see the season end with with proper matches. Yeah, uh, it means not having fans. So be it. In the short term, we'll get fans back in next season at some point. We'll get back to hopefully, you know, what we call normal. With, with with supporters in there, so it, it's not ideal. But the clubs have been brilliant; they've handled it handled it really well. I mean, you look how few positive tests there have been for coronavirus in the Premier League and in the Championship, and um, and and beneath have been very very few. So they're obviously doing something right, and it's just it's getting through this season, getting the season finished, and hopefully next season, if not the start of next season, then at some point early-ish in the piece, then we will be able to have supporters back in. Even if it's at first it's it's staggered and there's there's only a certain amount of fans in, they add so much to the experience having having fans there. Yeah. Uh, so we can just sort of hope and pray that the country's um, you know is, is able to move forward and we can progress as much as we can from uh, sort of COVID-19 it's always it's always going to be there. It's going to be there for a long time, but it's about how we how we manage to live with it. But getting fans back in the stadium would be would be terrific, Derek. Even if it's just some at the start, and we do it do it gradually because 
football without fans is longer term is not something that we ever really want to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that'll do us there, Jeff. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. So, yeah, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. Absolute pleasure, Derek. And um, if I have waffled on too much, then all I can do is <laughs> apologise to me. Derek invited me on. I said to him, I, I said to Derek, why do you want me on? I'm just going to just waffle and talk about Leicester and talk about myself. No one's going to be interested. Uh, but Derek insisted, so here I am. So, so if you've enjoyed it, listening to it, uh, great. And if you haven't enjoyed it, then just don't send me any aggravation. <laughs> just kind of go, yeah, he's pish. But pleasure, Derek. Well, that was episode 57 of the Talking Football podcast with Jeff Peters. As always, I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to listen to any previous shows, you can catch them all on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud and Podbean. Be also sure to check out the Talking Football website. It's talkingfitball.co.uk where you can listen back to all the interviews and there's also a host of great articles on there as well. If you're on Twitter, you can follow us at Talking underscore Football and we're on Facebook also. Hope you can join me again next time, but until then, keep safe and bye for now.